Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Wizarding Cricket Weekly Podcast. Test cricket is back and what a cracker to kick things off. A test that had you hooked from start to finish ended with West Indies sealing an impressive rare away win. I'm Yaz Rana and today I'm joined by Wizarding.com managing editor Ben Gardner, the editor-in-chief of Wizarding Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker and Wizarding.com features editor Tar Hashim. It's good to talk about an actual cricket match for the first time in four months. Phil, what was your overall impressions of cricket's comeback? Uh... A, a strange triumph that deepened over time, I thought. The, the first day we can scrap that because inevitably it was going to rain. That was to be expected. But after that, the game uh, became all the more enthralling, really. And and considering that the eyes of the world, the eyes of the cricketing world, were on this thing, and they were even pontificating towards the end, I think it was Michael Holding, that this may well have actually been the most watched game of, of Test Match cricket of all time, when you consider that this broadcast was going out across the world and that everybody has been starved of the game and compounding the point as well that they were playing in front of nobody at all and having to create this kind of tension and drama, for the game to have evolved as it did and reached, it reached this point of, of a great crescendo where it could have really gone either way until maybe the last half an hour or even the last 20 minutes of the game... Uh, is, is a testament to the two sides, really, and a testament to, to the enduring beauty of, of Test cricket. West Indi- the West Indies are consistently underrated, and for them to have pulled this one round, I mean, they'd already built up a hell of a lot of credit for the simple fact that they are here in England. They've been here for 30 days already. Uh, for them to have won this game fair and square, it, there's no rubber the green that's worked out for them, and I don't think that England particularly fluffed their lines either. I just think that a bunch of emerging cricketers, led by uh, a, a cricketer who is emerging now as a modern great, really, uh, have, have won this one legitimately up front, and it sets the series up beautifully. It's been 
from quite modest beginnings, it's been quite a thrill for me personally to watch this thing. So you were saying that it felt quite normal. Yeah, I mean, um, I think there was really something quite calming about um, Sky having that sort of that hum. Um, without that, it would have felt quite empty, but it was just sort of, um, especially comparing to watching the, the warm-up game where there was no sound at all. Um, here, I could sort of just like look elsewhere, or but still have that hum where it's kind of that familiar sound of test cricket. Um, and there's something really reassuring about that. And even yesterday when I was out, um, I would, you know, I'd be looking at my phone, just checking the score and it felt, it felt just really, it felt really nice to be honest. And so normal as well. And normal, yeah. And uh, like the silly discussions about, oh, who should be in England's lineup, who should bat a three. Um, having those conversations instead of mentioning things like biosecurity and, you know, yeah, that kind of thing. It was, it was just really nice. Well, we're going to talk about those questions just now. Uh, first up, Going back to the very start of the test, Ben Stokes in his first test as captain elected to bat first. It was a wet, overcast first day, interrupted by rain on multiple occasions. The forecast was pretty much the same for day two, for the sun to come up for the last three days. And that's pretty much exactly what happened. It's quite a loaded question, granted. But Ben, do you think that Stokes made the right decision at the toss? Uh, I've said before that I think it was basically just a, a 50-50 decision. And I think I, I I would stick by that. I can basically see the, the merits for... For, for all the various reasons. I think he probably would have expected England to bat a bit better on the first two days and then you really are putting a West Indies batting line up under scoreboard pressure. Equally, Holder said he would have bowled first. I think that's as much about almost wanting to protect his batting line up and get into the tour with a decent bowling performance. So maybe you'd want to put that pressure on them straight away. The pitch didn't wear as much as we thought it might, but that's also because of that rain that was around... <sighs> I, I mean, it's one of those things that's nice to talk about, I think, a toss decision, but I think the game was, was won and lost elsewhere, I think, and I don't, I don't think that was a decisive factor at all. Really? Um, like, the conditions were, were so much better for bowling on days one and two. It's, it's moved around notably much more on day two in particular. Uh, batting looked much harder then than compared to the rest of the test. Do you, or did West Indies just out-bowl England? I think they definitely did out-bowl England, basically. I mean, and the, with those, I mean, I guess they seemed to find the, the right length to bowl maybe Jason Holder especially was just was just brilliant on that on that second day um and Shannon Gabriel obviously got kept talking on Sky about how many bold dismissals he's got obviously they they targeted the stumps I think really well which um kind of meant that you know England's new ball spells are always a fraction too short and that was the case here and and yeah West Indies kind of just uh really they did as Phil said they outplayed England in in all departments and I think the other thing they did as well is they just um they they stuck at the uh like their task and really like kind of kind of knew when to when to sit in and when to attack with the ball and and with the bat like uh the key I think the key passage play for me was the the fourth evening uh when England could have batted West Indies out of the game and Alzari Joseph and Shannon Gabriel just tore through them and it was because they were they were fresh even though it was a, a four pace tack having at that point bowled a reasonable amount of time obviously having had such a long layoff uh where they wouldn't have had those overs in their legs and I think that Holder deserves credit as well for how early he turned to chase and Brathwaite. Like if that kind of goes wrong, you get some criticism for, you know, not keeping the pressure, letting them get away. But he actually just sort of sat in, tried to contain. And then when he saw the moment was there to be grabbed, went to his his two fast men and they and they did the job. So yeah, I think just it is a lot of credit to us in these basically. It's quite a relentless tack. Uh, having out Zari Joseph as your fourth seamer is, uh, you know, and they all do different things. Uh, ben Jones from Crickviz tweeted something yesterday about how all four bowlers were the best bowler at one different thing. Whereas like the England attack, arguably, you know, you've got two bowlers who 
whose strengths are quite quite similar. Ben, you wrote a piece about how older success perhaps shows that England made the wrong decision with their team selection. Uh, y- yes. Uh, I don't know if England's attack is... It was the, the attack for this test was, was exactly one-dimensional because I don't... I think people are too quick to put Archer and Wood in the same category, whereas I think Archer is a... Like, he, he can do lots and lots of different things with the ball. I think that he... Like, he, he almost rounds out any attack, I think, with the, the range of skills that he has. But I think that... Um, that, yeah, Wood like it's, it's odd because he's he's skiddy and he's uh and he's and he's quick and short that he, he, he doesn't seem to be threatening the stumps that much that it was more that like the, the the short ball stuff and that he was uh he was he was beating the bat rather than like gabriel was 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 bowling everyone whereas gabriel was obviously this 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 tall huge bloke it's it's, it's, it's odd that that's the way the way it happened uh but yeah I, th- I think holder especially i mean he's he's probably right now a slightly better bowler than Stuart broad but um Broad is the most similar to Holder they had, and just that type of bowler is always going to be effective in England. You see it in county cricket, you see constantly in Test cricket as well. I mean, not just uh, not just Holder in this Test, and not just English bowlers, but Tim Mercer last year, Mohamed Abbas the year before that. Like, if you're 80 miles an hour and you're hitting the top of off stump in England, you are going to be very successful. I think England picked Mark Wood because when it comes to India and Australia, that is less the case, and we've seen that in loads of tours past. We're going to just keep getting hammered. Um, and I think that does speak to them possibly slightly underestimating the challenge posed by West Indies as they kind of have done a lot of the times when I faced them, when they faced them. They, I mean, they did it the first test in 2019 as well when they picked a, a weird team basically with Keaton Jennings uh, opening the batting, Adil Rashid and Mo Nani in the team and some Car- Sam Curran taking the new ball. Ben Folks at eight. Yeah, true. It's a really weird team. Yeah. Um, Phil, I'm going to ask you a potentially ridiculous question. You described... Jason Holder is someone who's emerging into somewhat of a modern-day great. How many test matches do you reckon he would have played if he was English? Because I, I genuinely think it might not be many, if any. He bowls 80 miles per hour. England clearly, aside from Anderson and Broad, clearly are after pace bowlers. Would he even have got an opportunity if he was English? I can see where you're going with it. Uh, and certainly the, the, the modern trend is to ignore the likes of Ollie Robinson, whose first-class record is outrageous and who bowled brilliantly, I thought, in the trial game the other week, uh, in favour of pace. But I also think that that's a relatively modern trend in English cricket. The bowlers that have done it historically are still those uh, kiss the pitch and hit the top of off-stump bowlers. Um, There is a push towards extreme pace and an understandable one when you have in Mark Wood probably the second fastest bowler in the world after after Mitchell Stark, perhaps the third, but he's right up there. And I can understand the thinking why they went with with this pace attack. Personally, I'd, I would have played broad. I think the game showed that you needed broad on the, on a pitch like that. And I would have personally held, held wood back for Old Trafford, where you do get that little bit of extra nip, an extra bounce and zip. Um, in... In answer to your specific question, I think Jason Holder was an outstanding teenage cricketer. He was he was already the main man for the West Indies under-19 side and beat England pretty much on his own when he played against them 10 years ago or so. And I think, considering everything he has to offer, his intelligence as well as his skills, I think he would have played a lot of cricket for England as well. I have to say that. Um, but the broader question, the broader question, pardon the pun, about about the the uh, the makeup of this pace attack. Well, I think I think balance is everything, really, and and I think Ben was Ben was broadly right. I think I think it did have a have a 
a sense, it, it lacked a little bit of versatility and a little bit of adaptability, I felt, towards the end of the day. Um, uh, and it would have been would have been probably improved by by a bowler who in broad who would have just relentlessly hit that off the, the top of off stump slightly short of a length with a little bit of movement. That was what they were they were, they were crying out for. And with with Mark Wood, because of his height and because English pitches are on the slow side, uh, he is always working against that. It's it's hard to shake that. And 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 the ball did a bit for England in both innings for two hours and then did nothing thereafter uh and 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 that's where the likes of wood without any reverse swing available with quite a lush outfield and so on that's where the likes of wood will always he will always be up against it slightly in england i think um but i have to say it's 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 ifs and buts going back to the toss very briefly i think it was a touch and go decision i think it was a stokesian move to, to get out there and say, OK, there's a bit of cloud cover, but, it, you know, you get your head down. If we're one down at lunch, then we're in the box seat of the game. I can understand why he did it. I didn't personally have an issue with that decision. Um, and, yeah, I can understand, again, why Broad was, was kept aside. I personally wouldn't have done, but I think these are quite marginal decisions, really. Uh, there are issues of personnel in terms of who performed and who didn't during the game, absolutely, and you can come to them... Uh, but those kinds of selectorial and tactical decisions, I don't personally have that big an issue with them. Part of what made it such an entertaining test match is you had both teams were in control at different periods. And there was one period on day five, England had West Indies effectively seven for three. Archer was bowling arguably the best he's ever bowled for England. And that, that's saying something even in his brief international career. Um, but do you, do you guys think that England did anything wrong today? Um, as Phil said, it was quite easy to bat after after a while. But are there other things that England could have done differently? Um, now looking back on it, I think maybe we could have seen a bit more of Don Bess. I kind of remember the first ball he bowled on the day, like turned quite a bit and probably didn't see enough of him. But I think um, it's something we were discussing off air before, um, how he probably, he probably wanted a few more runs to play with to, to really give Bess a role where he sort of just holds and end the whole day. Like... 200 wasn't enough to just have Don Bess, who's still really inexperienced, just operate with, with men around the bat. Um, but I still think we could have seen a bit more of him. I think yeah. they, they just could have caught better. I mean, it's uh, you don't win many games defending 200 when you spurn four chances in the field. And I mean, Blackwood especially, if you give him chances, because he, he's, he is going to make you pay because he's going to score quickly enough that even if you get him out not that long after, he'll have added another another 20 runs. I mean, how what was he on when England first dropped? I think he was in single digits, and he went on to make ninety five. I mean, that's the game, the game right there. I mean, not not that any of them you're not going to single anyone out for for criticism, and I think sometimes it's just the way it goes that you drop catches that on another day you take. What one of them especially was unlucky because Stokes was moving to anticipate something and it ended up going fine. I mean, that's you know that that kind of happens, but I think yeah, that's England bowled well enough to create those chances, and today they weren't able to take them. I would agree with Taha uh, very much so on, on the issue of Don Bessie bowled 10 overs for 30-odd. Uh, he was extremely unlucky that umpire's call overruled uh, an appeal against Rostin Chase early on in the piece. And if he'd got that wicket, then perhaps he could have settled in. I thought they were a little bit too defensive with some of their fields with Bess. When you, when you are defending 200, you have two ways to go. You can try and, try and stagnate the innings... Uh, by keeping them to two and a half, three and over, or you can try and squeeze them. And I felt by posting a deep point straight away, which may well have been Bess's decision, 
but by posting a deep point straight away, it let them get get going against him, and they could they could angle the face out to out into the covers, and they could just milk him a little bit. And I would have preferred to have seen them back Bess a little bit more. He de- he turned a couple of deliveries quite appreciably, albeit it was only a fourth day pitch rather than a fifth, because obviously we lost that first day. Um, but yeah, aside from that, I don't think they could have done much more. Really, they 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 pounded in time after time. Wood bowled his heart out with, for no reward, really, and, and Stokes almost pulled it off. Uh, but he has met his match in in Holder. It's it's a fabulous dream of a match up. Those two really. Uh, and if Stokes had managed to nick him off, not that Holder looked in any bother at all, then I think that would have made history as well. The first time ever in Test cricket that two captains would have got each other out in both innings. They've been going at each other for 10 years now. Since that under-19s World Cup and onwards, they're probably the two most complete test match cricketers in the world. Uh, and it's joyous to watch. Ice and fire, it's, it's a stunning, stunning match-up. And Holder just cruised home today with barely a bead of sweat on his forehead. It was stunning to watch. I'd add, on the, on the, the deep point issue with Don Bess, he, he gave an interview to Sky where he spoke about that, which I think was really interesting because you don't often you don't get players actually... When you ask them a technical question, sometimes they'll give you a, a vague answer, whereas Don Best answered it really thoroughly, saying that he it's partly defensive to stop the boundary, but he likes batsmen playing that shot against him because he thinks that um that that's likely to get the catch slip. And I guess that's kind of what happened with the with the Blackwood one, which he, which, which would have taken a wicket if, if Yeah, no, I I saw that interview and I understand the thinking. Um but but I would I would do that if you're chasing three hundred. I would do that if you're chasing two eighty, but if you're only chasing two hundred or if you're, you're trying to defend 200, then it becomes all the more critical that you, you keep these batsmen down and you don't let, don't let them have relatively risk-free singles, which I felt it was. It wasn't like the ball was turning appreciably. It wasn't like it was going on with the arm dramatically either. So anyway, look, it's ifs and buts, isn't it? It's tiny little margins, really. But um, yeah, I think overall, I think, I think it was a fair result, really. And I don't think... I don't think there will be any any uh, frustration really, or any any sense of uh, of being hard done by in the England camp. And I thought the game was played, from what I could tell, in a beautiful spirit as well. You know, when Mark Wood hit John Campbell at the end in the helmet and just put his, you know, with ten runs needed, you would imagine all the pressure at, the, at that moment. And he went up to him, put his arm, put his hand up, asked him if he was okay, and I, you know, you, the lip reading was clear. Just asked him how he was. And that seemed to be the the tone of of the game. I, I think, I think the, the the symbolism of the game almost overtook the edge, but it wasn't for it didn't mean that it resulted in a bland game of cricket, which is one hell of an achievement, really, when you think about it. To have pulled that off with that kind of intensity in front of nobody, with the ceremonial aspect of it as well, I thought it was a stunning game of cricket and one to remember. My, my point, which was also going to be about the best thing, was that. I think I've rarely learned as much from a broadcast of a game of cricket as this one. And the best interview is an example of that. And the biggest example of that, well, two big examples of that were the the fantastic broadcast in the first morning of, of the uh, the little video feature about Black Lives Matter. And then Michael Holding's discussion afterwards on it was amazing. But also the Stuart Broad interview about him having been dropped and him just speaking frankly about being angry, frustrating, almost not not quite understanding the decision. And it, mean, it, it takes a lot from, from Sky to put that on and takes a lot from the England media team to allow Broad to be put up for that interview and I think it was a yeah just credit to all involved I think. You, you, you call it an interview Ben I, I'd be tempted to put the word job in brackets before the the word interview I thought it was brilliant by Broad but I thought he was also uh, smoothing the path for his post career let's say 
And it even began with him praising how praising Sky's uh, Sky's output. Uh, over the, the first couple of days, uh, which is not to say that he wasn't compelling in what he said, of course. Yeah, he, he really doesn't have an ulterior motive, does Broad, <laughs> when he's speaking. He's a... yeah. um, I think Sky deserve a lot of credit as well for the, the whole first hour of that they were on air on day one. Um, from a cricket fan's point of view, you were just looking forward to the return of cricket, and they use their opportunity of having you know the international cricketing world spotlight solely on them to put Ebony Rainford, Brent, and Michael Holding. Uh, front and centre to talk about very personal experiences regarding and facing racism. Um, these guys deserve a lot, lot of credit for that. I think it's pretty telling that um, I can't remember any cricket from day one. Uh, I can just remember that. So, yeah. And obviously, also Michael Holding and Ebony deserve so much credit for for just how they spoke. And I, I thought, especially because what what for me was almost more eye opening rather than the feature itself was the discussion afterwards. And you could see how the emotion was getting to holding at certain points, but he managed to, which is obviously completely unsaddable and only made it more powerful. But he was also able to like, just recall all these like specific details from all these studies, which just unarguably made his case. And yeah, minds would have been changed by that. It was great. Yeah, it was absolutely fantastic. I mean, we've, we've not actually talked about one of the, one of the players in the match. Uh, I mean, we're not talking about the player in the match, Alan Gable, but quickly first on Jermaine Blackwood. That was a really weird innings. Uh, <laughs> I... <laughs> I know he got 95. I know it was a match-winning 95. I'm still not sure it was any good. Um, <laughs> he should have been out at least four times, played and missed loads. But because he scored 95, everyone says it's a good innings. But was it? Anyone? <laughs> I mean, I'm glad you said it first. <laughs> um, I, d- I don't really know. I think I'm going to have to watch it back again. I was kind of just sort of confused the whole time it was happening. Just like, just the sort of slapdashery of some of his cut shots. Just thinking that's not how... You should be playing, basically. Um, but, you know, and then the way it ended as well. Uh, um, yeah, no. <laughs> Not many top six batsmen get caught mid-off in both innings. Yeah, I know. It's just, well, you know, 95 in a fourth innings to win a test in England. Mm. Um, yeah, that's, that, that, that is a good innings. Yeah, that, is, like, that is a good innings, Jazz, I reckon. Um, but yeah, also because he came into the game sort of talking about his, uh, his a, a double century in his most recent first class game, talking about his patience and yeah, as you say, caught a mid off both innings uh, and also some some very good shots over mid off as well. It's uh, uh, yeah. And in that first innings, I just thought there's no way he doesn't get out to Don Bess here, just because <laughs> uh, the nature of the player he is. And then it kind of fe- felt really obvious when he did. And then and then for him to do this a couple of days later is just it's pretty remarkable. I would just I'd just add though that. That all, all decent cricket teams, they need a bit of personality and they need a little bit of variety in their, their makeup. And and while he's obviously a bit of a loose cannon, Jermaine, and we all know that he's the Bradman of, of West Indies England fixtures and can barely find a run elsewhere, we all know about that. But but in that setup, when you look at that team, it makes sense. The components of that team make sense. You have Roston Chase at five, who's a technically sound player. You have a top three that there's a bit of kind of Light and shade in that top three, albeit Shea Hope needs runs, but it makes sense why they're persisting with him there. Holder and Dowrich make sense at seven and eight. And then and then you have that little kind of fantasy player in there at six. And Nasser Hussein made a very good point after the game. He said, you don't want identikit cricketers in a, in a cricket team. So Jermaine is easy to laugh at. And, and, and uh, you know, he's, he's got a, a charge sheet as long as your arm. When he ran past that one at Headingley last time out with, without a helmet on, just just for the crack, just for the larks. 
And to get caught mid-off twice in a, in a test match, sure. I mean, it's broadly village. But he's also gone ahead and won that game because he dared to live a little. So, so yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a bit churlish to put the boot in. But I do kind of know where you're coming from. Uh, but, but, yeah, just looking through that team again, that, that, that pace attack, that pace attack speaks for itself. You know, Shannon Gabriel, I mean, he's right up there in the list of fast bowlers I'd rather die than have to face. I mean, what a... What a a terrifying proposition he is. And Alzari Joseph is a dreamboat of a fast bowler. When you think as well, they have O'Shane Thomas and Kamar Holder as well, the two young quicks um, on the sidelines waiting to get involved. And when you consider where their fast bowling stocks were like 10 years ago, when Fidel Edwards was probably the tallest fast bowler they had, and he was about five foot six, it's, in, it's, a, it's a great turnaround. I spoke to a very senior journalist a few years ago who said, I don't think West Indies will be playing cricket in five years, test cricket in five years. Well, now they're holding the Wisdom Trophy and they're one up with two to play. It's great to yeah, see. I think with, with Gable, I remember uh, Wisdom Cricket Monthly did a, a piece on the, uh, the the 25 best fast bowlers in the world a couple of years ago and like a quick viz analysis of their strengths and weaknesses. And Gable finished bottom on movement in the air. And I think in, even in the test match, he didn't move it that much, but I thought it was really skillful with the movement he got on day one. Uh, I mean, we, we basically had the perfect start to cricket's comeback with Dom Sibley leaving a straight one. But it was really well bowled, and I thought Gabriel set the tone uh, for the game brilliantly. And also, he could barely run in the second session on day four. And then to come back for that spell in the evening without Zari Joseph um, it was, it was brilliant. It's basically what won West Indies the game. I mean, England had battered themselves into position. Dom Sibley got 50, uh, 50 Roy Burns 40-odd, Zach Crawley 76 Ben Stokes, 43. They backed themselves in a position where they could have batted West Indies out the game. Then they had this, uh, the, the, the classic England collapse of 30 for five in the evening session. Um, ben, do you think England lack a ruthlessness um, when, when, they're, when they're batting sometimes? They could, they could so easily have not lost this game. Yeah, I think they do. And I think the, the interesting thing is just how the mood shifted with basically one dismissal there. Like when it's Stokes and Pope going and you're, and you're four down and you're, you know, what, 250 or you're like, oh, this is fine. And then all of a sudden, when one of them gets out, you actually kind of realise that actually it's an out of form Joss Butler in, the, in next. And then it's, you know, a 22-year-old Don Bess. And then it's like a, a, a very, like, a not very handy tale. It's, uh, it's I think I think that, like, it's amazing how quickly England's lower order has gone from uh, being such a strength to them to being a weakness. And I almost think that maybe the top order just hasn't adjusted to that exactly or, or not the top order but the middle order I think the top order is showing the solidity needed the middle order before was basically just like you know the lower middles kind of start at five or six and all of them could kind of average like 35 down to number nine and then you'd be you'd be all right with playing the kind of the, the shot that Stokes played um Pope I think we can probably you know he's I, don't, I think he's sort of in a slightly different category he's just had two failures he didn't I don't think he was particularly at fault I guess Stokes I mean I think I should almost turn the question back on you because you're a uh, a very interesting piece yesterday about Ben Stokes and although he averages 50 in the last year um what like do, like England need more from him I mean as you say it's in the, the prime of his career and he's only averaging 50 for the last 12 yeah. months I mean it, it comes from a place of love I think Stokes is so good and I think for somebody who is I mean NASA described him as England's best batsman yesterday for a player that good at the very peak of his powers he should be averaging more than 50. In the last, since Headingley, 16 test innings, he's been out between um, 10 and 70 as many times as Joe Denley has. Um, he's only had one more 70 plus score than Joe Denley in that time. I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not comparing them uh, exactly, but 
I think Stoke, in, this particular England team needs Stokes to score more than 40s, basically. Um, that test match was there for the taking on the on the fourth evening and England let an opportunity slip. And in the first thing as well, they were, they were both. Uh, Phil, I know you won't hear a bad word said against him. Uh, what do you make of Yaz's, uh, Yaz's criticism of Stokes? I have to say, I haven't read that piece, Yaz. Don't take it personally. Um, but I, I can absolutely understand your point in regards to this game. I think less so the second innings because I think the game was beginning... The game had already played out up to a point. The, the third innings, it's hard to get 300-plus in, in a third innings on a wearing pitch. But that first innings, Stokes played masterfully for 40-something, 40, 40 46, I think it was, and then got a bit cute. Holder was bowling round the wicket, and Stokes tried to work him through mid-wicket to a delivery that needed to be smothered, needed to be blocked and respected. And it was almost, he was a victim almost of his own brilliance in that first innings, I thought. And, and that was a key moment. He was in with, I think, Butler at the time. Butler, who also played nicely and then nicked off frustratingly. Um, but England lost this game, really, in that first innings. To be, to be 200 all out, OK, the ball moved around, but it was still a flat track. Uh, to be 200 all out, that's not really, not really up to much. And that's where, really where they lost this game. I can understand where you're, where you're coming from with Ben Stokes. Uh, but but we, we also have to, have to recognise that he is, he is a human being, isn't he? You know, and, and his brilliance... Uh, he can sometimes appear imprisoned by his own brilliance, you know, and 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 I think we have to we have to recognise that everybody is allowed to make a false shot from time to time. Um, I'm actually sli- I'm slightly surprised that that he didn't find a way to to move to get through to a seventy odd because he's a natural leader. The, the captaincy thing would be a dream for him to have on his shoulders. It wouldn't be a burdensome thing at all. And so yeah. Uh, he may well reflect and look back and think he was out twice playing loose shots um, away from his body in the second innings, getting caught in the gully. So, yeah, possibly. But he also he also screamed in and took six or seven wickets as well and made 90 runs in the game. So, you know. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. He was he, he was clearly England's best player in the test. Don't get me wrong. Um, but there is also a pattern of... In, in England's last three defeats, Stokes has got out at quite crucial points playing loose shots that have prompted collapses basically because the players beneath him in the order haven't been delivering consistently um there's just so much in this current England lineup that is expected of Stokes for England to win they regularly need Stokes to perform uh miracles basically and that that does take us on to one of the players in question quite nicely so Josh Butler averages now less than 20 in the last year um Oh, you've written a really nice piece on on Josh Butler. What's what's gone wrong? It started. It was going so well for him in 2018 when he first came back in the Test team. And it's not gone well since. You've read it, yes. Oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> um, well, so I was. Uh, I mean, that's what I wrote today, and I was quite interested to see what what's been happening with him. So I sort of did some things, like did some research, see quick viz, and basically. Um, his defence was was really key for him in 2018. I mean, we think about Josh Butler as a cricketer, uh, and we talk about what he does as as, as an attacking force. But in 2018, um, and he's talked about this uh, in interviews as well. He really had had faith in his defence, um, and you know relied on his instincts. But you know, it was about and it was about playing the match situation. It wasn't about necessarily about being um, Josh Butler, the white ball cricketer, or necessarily be like someone like Adam Gilchrist. He was he was just going to play the situation. Um, and then, if you look at stats from from basically the start of 2019, his you know his 
I think um, on average he's been out sort of once every 35 defensive shots, whereas in 2018 it was once every 130-something shots, um, which is quite a remarkable statistics really, statistic, really. And so if, if the defence is not right, then you're obviously not going to see the Joss Butler who's, you know, 40, 50 balls into his innings where he's just going to let loose. And um, it's just about getting to that stage again. But at the same time, uh, what, we're 42 test matches into Joss Butler's career, one test ton, um, it's becoming really hard to see you know, him really develop into the test cricket that people have thought that he was going to become. Um, and, you know, Ben Folks, you know, one test century from five tests did very little wrong when he was in the side. Um, he's he's there now and, you know, Joss Butler was vice-captain in this match, but surely after, at some point, if it just continues to, to be like this, then then you have to you have to give Ben Folks a go. Phil, I know you love Butler. You've been team Butler all the way. Would you consider leaving him out at the end of the series if his run continues? Yeah, at the end of the series, for sure. Yeah, I would. I think uh, you can only be, you know, only be given so many chances, of course. doesn't matter who you are. I think everybody knows that there is a test cricketer in there. Um, but you can't have limitless opportunities to show it. That's fair enough. That is fair enough. I, I, I would give him four more innings... Um, See how he goes. I thought, for what it's worth, he made 35 in the first innings and looked very good. And I thought he'd found the right tempo, which has been this ongoing story. I thought Dominic Cork spoke a load of nonsense uh, on Sky Sports that evening uh, on the debate, uh, saying, well, he's still trying to find the, the, right, the right approach. He should play more like Gilchrist, more like a one-day player. Well, he made 35 in 45 balls and looked fluent and in control. Uh, and then he got a good one and nicked off. The dismissal in the second innings and the innings itself was alarming, I found. And the shot that he played to get out, the, the balance was all over the place. It looked like he was a bit scrambled in his mind, you know. You don't really see Joss Butler play those kinds of shots in, in any format of cricket. Um, but yeah, you know my feelings on it. Um, I would rather give him the old Trevor Bayliss cliche. I'd rather give him one, te- one or two tests too many than one or two tests too few. But if at the end of this series he still hasn't made that statement score, uh, then then yeah, I think you move him along. Um, I would also add as well he dropped a catch today, a crucial catch um, that was given as a leg by, but it was wrong. Um, it came off the glove. Uh, but apparently that's his first catch that he's dropped for England in two years. They said on Sky via Crickviz. So the the first catch he's dropped since 2018. So. Ben Folks is this kind of garlanded gloveman, um, but Josh Butler does does the business more often than not as well with the gloves. So it's not like you are transferring one barely competent wicketkeeper for for a, a real true artist. I think both, you know, okay, Folks gets the nod, but but Butler does the job competently enough. But as, as everybody knows, you can't have limitless opportunities to make those runs, and at the moment. Um, He's not quite pulled it off. The frustration is that after the Oval last year, when he was informed by the end of the summer, I thought that he was going to kick on and he hasn't over the winter and in this, this test match. He has four more innings, I would say. And that's that. That, that, that. That's what I give him as well. And just on the Gilchrist thing, I mean, it's an obvious point to say, but it's, it's much easier to, to play as Gilchrist does when you're coming in at 390 for five rather than 90 for five as Butler did in this test in the first innings and often still has to for England. I mean... 
uh, the, the frustration, I guess, is that he has had platforms on occasion and still not been able to play that way. But but yeah, and, end of the series and then and then reevaluate, in my opinion. Now on to the big question, the, the, the Joe Denley question. We've been waiting four months for this. Two scores of in between 10 and 30 again. It's happening a lot. Zach Crawley, the 22-year-old from Kent as well, he scored 76, looked really fluent. Phil, you tweeted during the warm-up game that Corey just looks like he's got more time than most most batsmen. Joe Root's going to come back in the team for the second test. Tar, who do you think should bat three? First, how often do you talk about Joe Denley on this podcast? Every time. <laughs> Every time. Every time. Um, no, for me, for me, it's Zach Crawley. Um, he's got a higher ceiling. He he looks the part um, when I see him. I think when I, I think watching his test debut, he was really nervous, and then. Every time since then, he's just looked a better player each innings. I think pretty much everyone has, has said that about him, um, and I agree with that. And um, he just looks—he just looks a good player. And Joe Danley kind of is reliable in a way, but I just feel like England should dream bigger. You know, like he's—he's he's done a good job, and you know, we say this thing where he sort of—he gives a platform for the guys after him. Um, I don't see any reason why Zach Crawley can't do that either. Um, and and Zach Crawley played pretty well in this test, and I just feel like I just feel like he's done enough and 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 deserves a go. We head over to Team Denley, represented by Ben. <laughs> I, I mean, I'd, I'd say I'd say I'm 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 slightly in favour of retaining Joe Denley for the moment. I'm I'm currently getting sticker uh, stick on Twitter for, for for saying that in 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 a piece. But um, yeah, I mean. Look, I, I, to be honest, I actually agree with a lot of, of what Taha says and what people have been saying about Joe Denny versus Zach Crawley. I think Zach Crawley does have a higher ceiling. I think he, he does look very good whenever he plays. Uh, I think that Joe, Joe Denny there is a slightly worrying trend of dismissals. And I think that he's not going to be a, a world-class number three. But also, Zach Crawley has three first-class centuries, averages 31, only averages a run and a half more than Joe Denley in, in test cricket, even having supposedly had this, you know, this very promising to such test career is only averaging 31. And I think crucially from how England will see it, he faces 10 balls fewer per dismissal. I've, I've written this in the piece, but I think England would rather have a number three who is scoring on average 29 off 75 as Joe Denley is rather than 31 off 65 as, as Crawley is. And I think the other thing as well is that like almost people make fun of Joe Denley for getting into double digits every time but but there is a certain albeit limited value to it 24 out of his 28 test dismissals which is a remarkable ratio really he's got into double figures and, and like it's, it's very easy to laugh about it and because because like obviously ideally England would expect more from their number three but I don't think you guarantee that Zach Crawley is going to be doing better than Joe Denley is doing and I think there's a very real chance that when you actually start picking him and you see that actually he is at that level at the moment where he is a player who will average 30 in test cricket to begin with. It won't be that long until people are calling for his head, you know, before the India tour, perhaps England might face a decision where actually I think what Zach Crawley needs is a season in county cricket, which he is now likely, or, well, he is likely to get the chance to get because there will be some county cricket this summer, put together an actual campaign of note, which he hasn't had a chance to do yet. And then England can kind of see where they are at the end of at the end of the summer, I don't think that planning for the future means you have to stack your your, your top your top six with players under the age of twenty five. I think that Joe Denley is still doing the job that England have picked him for, and I think that while he continues to do that, and there isn't an outstanding other candidate, I can see why they will stick with him. Yeah, Phil, it dawned at me 
during this test match that Joe Denny might actually be England's number three during the Ashes next winter. Something I hadn't really thought about. I, I, I do actually think that there is there is logic into him staying in the team. There's no outstanding option outside the team banging on the door specifically for the number three spot. I know we both love Dan Lawrence, um, but Phil, what do you what do you think England will will do with with Joe Denley and the number three spot? I think they'll drop him. You think they'll drop him? I think they'll drop him and play Zach Crawley at three from here on in. Isn't that obvious? No, I'm, not, I'm not sure it is. I think Chris Silverwood came out before the test match and said that Joe Denny was the incumbent. He didn't, ben wrote in his piece that he didn't really have to do that. Ed Smith, likewise. They could easily have said... They, they could have easily not said anything, but they, they did fully support Denny before the test match. And Denny didn't have a dreadful test match. He, he basically did what he's been doing... <laughs> ever since he got into the England team. Sure, but Crawley played a really quite classy and important innings in the second innings when the pitch was wearing and the pressure was on and he went out and strummed 76. He's clearly a better player than Denley with more versatility. Uh, Denley's technique has been picked apart at test match level. It's not his fault. <laughs> it's fine, but it is what it is. Uh, and so I would be shocked... If come Friday or Thursday, when they're at Thursday morning, uh, Crawley's not batting three and Joe Root's not batting four, I'll be absolutely shocked by that. Crawley showed also in South Africa, considering he was thrown into the lion's den, he showed that he can score runs against good quality attacks. He was sorted out in that first innings by Rabada, and after that he made, he made some, um, some contribution in every innings after that. I think he made a 20 or 40 and a 60 thereafter. Uh, and made a, as I say, made an excellent seventy-six in the second inning. So I'll just be, I'll just be shocked if Denley plays in the next Test match. I really will. I'll be amazed. And I, I hope, I hope, for our own sanity, that this conversation can finally be put to bed come Thursday morning, and we can all move on. And thank Joe for, for and he will thank England for having had fifteen Test matches, fifteen Test matches he never thought he was going to get, and he's had a lovely time of it. And he almost made an Ashes 100 and he played a big part in that famous win at the Oval. Everybody's comfortable with that. And then we can all move on uh, and, and, and address the next situation. But, but the, 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 the Crawley thing, I mean, the scores that you cite, you know, you've got a 20, a 40, a 60 and a 70. Those are, those are if, if you read those scores out and said, oh, Joe Danny's only getting, you know, 20s and 40s, the occasional 70, you'd be like, oh yeah, got to drop him, find the next guy. And I mean, he made 76, sure. He also got out when the game was there to be put to bed. And I think whether you agree with this or not, England will, in a way, credit Denley with some of those runs because Crawley got to come in in the 50th over. You say a wearing pitch, I would say, against part-time spinners and wearing bowlers. I think that, like, there's there's no way... Crawley just hasn't put together an unanswerable case, which I think is how it is often presented. And I, I personally don't think that England will yet see it that way because of what... So the, the, the context of the Chris Silverwood comments was he was asked, is it a straight shootout between Crawley and Denley? And he said, no, Denley is the incumbent. Uh, he said that I'd like to give you one too many rather than one too few, but also said he's, he's doing a good job. And Ed Smith said the same thing. He said that obviously he'd like big scores for number three, but the scores made by fours, five and six, Joe Denley gets some credit for them. And I think that, again, in this test, he will get credit for the 76 that, that Crawley scored. All right, well, let's, let's put a tenner on the table, Ben, and we'll see what's what on Thursday morning. It'd be, it'd be, it would be glorious if Joe Denley scored 100. I want to add, I want to add, I'm, will, I'm willing him to score runs. I really like watching Joe Denley bat, and I really like him as a bloke. 
I think he's, he's a real kind of good, feel-good story for English cricket. I've been willing him on all, throughout all of this. The problem is, he doesn't have the technique to pull it off. Well, while, while the loss will be uh, a concern for England, it's yet another defeat in the series opener. Um, if, if They've lost uh, each of their last four or five series openers, except for the... It is four, yeah. First test match of the last four series, they've lost them all. Well, no, well, or, well it depends if you count the, um, the Ireland test, because then it's five. Because then you go back to the last test series in the West Indies. And also, they have now lost more home tests than anyone else in the last five years worldwide. And I know they have played slightly more, but uh, their home record is incomparable to the teams they want to be competing against. Uh, Australia, New Zealand and, and India. But more positively, this is a huge win for the West Indies. Uh, they, they, have, they don't actually play that much test cricket. They're Lancashire eighth in the world rankings. And they've got a massive chance of getting registering a huge result here. Um, do you think, they mentioned a commentary towards the end, Tar, that being in the country for a month helped them? Like They got more preparation than a normal touring side. So they, they, they turned up ready for action, probably more ready than England. Yeah, but like that's still, I mean, what they've still just been playing each other. I mean, it's still, it's still mightily impressive what they've done without, like they've not played warm-up matches against other counties or anything like that, against bowlers who are already used to those conditions. Um, so... Yeah, I can understand that being a bit of a factor, but I mean, let's just let's just you know let's just say it's it's just a brilliant performance from West Indies and they just played really well. I feel like I, d- I don't know how big a factor that comes into it. I wonder though. There's I mean, there's a lot of things you can sort of point to as factors, but the the practice match one is interesting because I I don't think there's any doubt that against a a county side where they'd normally pick you know second teamers, give debuts a lot of people, it's going to be less intense than like a, a warm up game where not only are you a uh, are you competing, you know, to, to, to get ready for the series, but you're competing for place as well. There's, there's real heat on those games. And uh, Australia as well had a an intra-squad warm-up game before that series go in and, I mean, I mean they were 100 for eight on the first morning, but did did then did then win the first test match. And I think there's not only something to the, uh, the amount of time they've been in the country, but that type of warm-up, I can see it catching on. I guess the question will be as if uh, if teams can just afford to fly that many players over to a country. But, but I mean... You know, you arrange a Lions tour alongside it, or an A tour, or whatever, and all of a sudden it becomes a much easier, much easier thing to do. I think, uh, yeah, that I think there's possibly something in that. Um, on the first test, the series thing, personally, feel that England maybe get just slightly too cute with their team selections leading up to uh, a first test. We've already discussed the West Indies series last time, the Australia one. You'd maybe say that James Anderson hadn't proved his fitness, but England were sort of backing that to come through, and then in South Africa. I mean, albeit there's the the illness factor, but they went with the with all the quicks when, again, maybe that they, it's a misreading of the pitch, or they kind of just almost talk themselves in knots in the protracted build up to a test series. I think it's it's an interesting thing. Maybe it's coincidence, but there's there's possibly something in it. I think we've already talked about uh, Sky's Black Lives Matters piece at the start of the first day, but there was there was a lot to talk about of uh, about stuff that happened off the field as well. I thought the, we talked about how good Sky were, but there's also uh, a, a really, really funny moment on day on day four, which I think is one of the funniest things I've ever seen uh, happen in a commentary box. So, so Sky was celebrating the return of of club cricket by reading out some of the best performances and you know notable mishaps that have been sent in from across the country, uh, and then someone, obviously some you know smart fellow, sends in that uh, Hugh uh, Jardin by the first name of Hugh has uh, taken six for nine against Cockermouth CC which Michael Atherton reads out 
<laughs> with real gusto. And I think I think part of what duped him was he was just so eager to say his fact that Cockermouth CC was Ben Stokes' old club. So he goes, Hugh Jarden, six for nine, Cockermouth CC. That's Ben Stokes' old club. And <laughs> Rob Key can't speak for the next five minutes. Has to do a third man piece a few minutes later. And the, the, the first line just comes out like an in, 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 inaudible squeaks. It's uh, <laughs> really, and, and just such a juvenile joke as well, but uh, is obviously still so funny. Uh, yeah, it was great. Yeah. Uh, but better than Legover, in my opinion. Well, much better than Legover. Um, and yeah, also on day four, uh, a piece I wrote about Dan Lawrence got a shout out from Nass. <laughs> I can't air. believe you're talking about that on the podcast. Um, well, I, I can't stop thinking about it. I was wondering, like, when did NASA read it? Like, was he sitting on the loo? Uh, did somebody WhatsApp him? Uh, was, he re- was he reading it with his breakfast? Um, that, was a, that was a good moment. I'd um, like to think Dom Sibley was talking about um, playing you at, at club level and then... And then NAS, uh, NAS just Googled your name and that came up. <laughs> well, Ben, ben create, spent, wasted a lot of time on Photoshop to create a, a graphic mentioning that in the, the graphic that Sky put up about achievements that Dobbs Sibley's done. But they were quite weird achievements, weren't they? Like including Ronzi made at school. Yeah. And you added um, Ronzi dropped off my bowling as well, which uh, was a nice touch. It's weekly mention of the pod. That as well. We've, got, we've, t- <laughs> we've ticked off Denley. We've ticked Yaz, dropped off Dom Sibley. Uh, what else have we got to get? Uh, I, think, I think that's it. Um, anyway, this has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. Thanks for listening, folks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends, subscribe, and if you're feeling extra nice, leave us a five-star review in the podcast after your choice. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network.